Tutu did not have a constitution in South Africa to appeal to for trying to appeal to human a human vision of who a black person is. There was no constitution. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia. Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Cynthia Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Brown. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee's School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Reverend Dr. Michael Battle. Michael is the Herbert Thompson Professor of Church and Society, and the Director of the Desmond Tutu Center at General Theological Seminary in New York, and the President and CEO of Peace Battle Institute. Michael, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'd like to ask all my guests, as we are feeling like making a big turn in this pandemic, um, what's this last year uh, meant to you? Yeah, you know, Andy, I wrote a book um, previous to this one that we're going to be discussing on the book of Revelation and apocalyptic realities that we need to face. And so the year 2020, um, no coincidence, I guess, to the symbolism of clear sight, um, was quite a year. And it revealed, you know, who we really are, I think. And as, as I've made it through this pandemic, thanks be to God, um, I, I realize all the more what it means to be interdependent. And I think uh, God's work to heal us 
um, is pointing toward that interdependence. And I think that goes from our sort of family systems on a, on, on a, on a, a micro scale to our family systems on the, the global scale. So just making it through this pandemic has revealed um, what we need um, in order to, to flourish and in order to be human. As I mentioned in the opener, you're a professor at General Theological Seminary. How has this pandemic changed the way you are approaching theological education? Um, yeah, you know, in church history, um, it's always um, important to understand the, the Reformation. And in Anabaptist traditions, um, as you well know, Reformation is important. Um, the, one of the reformations we've gone through is um, moving away from just certain people being able to read the Bible and certain languages like Latin is the only way it was written to making sure things are available um, to all people. Uh, the, the democratization of everyone being able to read in their own vernacular languages. And I think um, we've begun to see that we're in a whole nother reformation in terms of theological education. Maybe a good way to describe it is now it's not simply a, a textual reformation, but a digital one. So teaching now in seminaries, we, we, we can no longer be afraid of using um, a digital format, using video, using Zoom. Um, theological academies can't look down upon that as somehow less than um, we're, we need to embrace how we can teach and how there's so many different learning styles. And sure, I know we need to resist being controlled by technology, but we need to be able to control it so that we can be um, as good as we can be in terms of teaching and discipleship. I realize this next question um, is, a, is a bit loaded in the sense of, <laughs> You could probably answer it in the next 40 minutes or so. Uh, but as far as, you know, your tradition, you know, what kind of church will ministers and training be leading in the next decade as a result of this pandemic? Yeah, I think, <clears throat> I think we have to, to see how, you know, we are, we need to make whatever ministries we have available to all people, um, not just to our people um, and we need to be able to have a gospel message, a good news message, not just for those that we think are saved, but a good news message for all of creation, um, including human beings. Um, and so I think, I think this pandemic has opened up our eyes to see who the audience is um, uh, who the ones listening are. And I think we've, we've had a sort of myopic vision before, but now we can see a, in a more extensive way of what ministry should look like and, and how it should look. Um, and I think, you know, when we get into uh, my spiritual biography on Tutu, we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, but I think Tutu's life has pointed in his maturity to reach out to all people, not just Christians. Um, and I think as we, 
as we move forward out of this pandemic, churches have begun to realize that in some instances, they, they have received more people um, through their services on Zoom than they were in the brick and mortar buildings on the corner of First and Elmwood Street. Um, so we need to take advantage of, of how we can do ministry um, in a post-pandemic uh, age. I say post, that doesn't mean that future pandemics have been held at bay. As I also mentioned, um, you are the president and CEO of Peace Battle Institute. Tell us more about this organization. Yeah, Peace Battle is um, a way that I've incorporated my books, my speaking engagements, um, and ways in which I, I do my ministry in a more corporate way. In some ways, it's building on what I just said. Um, so. I'm trying to make sure that I can maximize technology, maximize the way that, you know, um, what I'm trying to teach about restorative justice or Desmond Tutu is not put under a bushel, um, but the, the light can shine throughout the world. Of course, um, when you try to do ministry in a corporate way, you have to make sure you're disciplined to make sure that your motivations are not, are not just about um, money or prestige, but keeping in mind how is it that we can maximize some of the parables that Jesus gave us so that our talents are exponential and not being wasted. How can people get involved in it? Sure, yeah. As, um, as you go to my website, you'll begin to see some of the things that we're going to be starting to offer uh, through Peace Battle, um, but also just in terms of uh, staying in touch with the things that I'm trying to write, and also what General Theological Seminary is trying to do with um, the, two, the Desmond Tutu Center. Um, it should be pretty easy to see the, the, the new initiatives that will be coming forward. So uh, you have a new book out uh, to add to the 11 you've already written. Uh, the book is Desmond Tutu, A Spiritual Biography of South Africa's Confessor. You wrote, describing Tutu as a saint is controversial, both in the sense of written on him as a living figure and explaining the deeper meaning of the word saint. The concept of saint is often never fully explained or is used in a superficial way to describe a nice person. When I describe Tutu's spiritual life here, I do so with an intent of describing a complex life in a controversial time. This isn't the first book you've written about Desmond. What makes this one different? Yeah, thanks for um, focusing on that, Andy. I think that's important in terms of the premise of the book. Um, you know, the books that I've written before that have had a lot of my uh, analysis of Tutu's ministry has, has pretty much been on a sort of theological um, basis and the kind of discourse that you talk in, in sort of a theological way. And what I mean by theological is what has come to be known as sort of a European systematic way of talking about theology. And in, in many ways in the academy, we've made up our own language on theological language, on terms. Um, if you get a PhD in theology, you usually have 
to learn German and French as if those are the only languages you can talk about theology. So my, my other books have been in that sort of framework. Um, this, this one on, on Tutu spiritual life, I've tried to look more at the existential nature of his life and impact. And um, oftentimes when you think of Desmond Tutu, he gets relegated to political discourse. Um, my previous job was to make sure that people understood that he has an impact in theological discourse. And I think in this book, what's different is I'm trying to, to argue that he has a tremendous impact into existential discourse. That is the reason people write biographies is to be invited into a person's existential life. That, that life that's not simply an interior life, but a life that has consequences and causes and effects. And so this biography is inviting hopefully many readers to come into Tutu's life to see those causes and effects that I think have created him into a saint. All right. So this is an insane thought even to say it. However, there are some listening to this conversation that know the name, but don't know the great deal about uh, Desmond Tutu. So, so give us your best summation of his life and work, knowing that a brief summation does not do the man justice. Sure. Um, and I think there's, there are many reasons why people are not getting to know Tutu's life. So that's important for me to, to try to give some short foundation. Um, Desmond Tutu became famous uh, in um, the 80s, especially when he won the Nobel Peace Prize. And South Africa in the 80s were um, years of deep turmoil and what, what was called states of emergency. And the apartheid government system, which was a legal system, based on race. So if you were black, you had legal rights. And as a black person, if you were white, you had the most legal rights. If you were colored or so-called colored, you had another set of legal rights. And you had to carry pass passes, similar to passports. Um, and those passes would show what you had access to. Um, black people, because of this legal system, had the least access in an apartheid system. And so in the 80s, apartheid was at its peak. And Tutu won the Nobel Peace Prize. And thanks be to God for the wisdom of the Nobel um, family and foundation to bring attention to Tutu's life. And from the 80s, he, 1986, became the Archbishop of the Anglican Church of the province of Southern Africa. And that also gave him authority, not just in South Africa, but around the world, um, being an Archbishop in the Anglican commun uh, Communion, and as well as being an Archbishop uh, from the British Isles gave him access to 
bringing international attention to apartheid. And so from those two really powerful um, authoritative um, positions, the Nobel Peace Prize, as well as becoming the Archbishop, um, he was able to galvanize um, events like sanctions against an apartheid government. He was able to be an international voice to make sure that people understood the ridiculous nature of apartheid. Um, he was also able in a key way to keep the momentum going to dismantle apartheid because you know, for almost 27 years, Nelson Mandela was in prison and you know, out of sight, out of mind could easily have been the temptation of an apartheid government to keep things at bay. We see similar situations um, like in Russia and other um, um, states of uh, nation states, they try to keep people out of sight, out of mind to um, tamp down any sort of rebellion. And so that's what happened with Nelson Mandela. He was out of sight, out of mind. And people like Archbishop Tutu kept the momentum going. And so Nelson Mandela became the president um, in 1994, an epic biblical story of moving from being a prisoner to being the president of a nation state as soon as he came out of prison. And as you can imagine, South Africa was a mess, a total mess. Most people thought it would just end up being a quagmire of violence similar to the Middle East that would just go on and on and on in terms of violence and retaliation. But a miracle occurred in which South Africa was able to um, have a transition, unlike most transitions of nation states caught in civil war, that was peaceful. And a large part of that was something that South Africa modeled better than I think any other nation state, and that's a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And in Mandela's wisdom, he had quite a bit of wisdom. He chose Desmond Tutu to be the chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And Tutu led this government um, uh, work through bringing people out in the open um, who did things behind the scenes and, and sometimes publicly that were considered political violent acts. And as long as folks who understood what they were doing and gave a public confession they could have a chance at amnesty. And a nation state modeling such a, a process of restorative justice rather than retributive justice um, became famous worldwide with many other nation states trying to imprint upon what South Africa was offering in terms of transitional government. And since then, Tutu being the chair of the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, he was named an elder, um, one of the, the few people who go around the world um, helping not just in politics, but in many urgent matters that are affecting us as human beings, such as climate change or uh, HIV AIDS or, some, or many other events like that. So he was an elder. 
and he became really good friends in a interreligious relationship um, in terms of a deep friendship with the, his holiness, uh, the Dalai Lama. And so Tutu's spirituality was also showing that he wasn't just trying to practice um, interdependence just with Christians, but interdependence with all of creation and with all human beings. So that's sort of a, a shorthand in terms of Tutu's life and, and impact. Of course, you have to read the almost 400 pages to get more detail about Tutu's life and impact that, that I wrote. You wrote, Tutu's spirituality is highly significant precisely because one cannot distinguish its theory from its praxis, both uh, because of both toil and synchronically toward a desire effect of reconciliation and transformation. Take us a little deeper there. Um, oftentimes we um, separate spirituality and politics, for example. Um, just like in the Bible, um, two of Jesus's best friends are separated into two different typologies, Mary and Martha. Mary is seen as the contemplative one sitting at Jesus's feet. Martha is seen as the active one trying to make sure that the house is in order for this magnificent guest in Jesus. And through the years, we've done the same thing with spirituality and politics or spirituality and activism. Um, that's a false dichotomy to, to divide spirituality and activism. Um, it's also a false dichotomy to divide ethics and spirituality. Um, spirituality from the desert tradition, from those early saints, Saint Anthony, um, who was known to be the first monk. Um, he shows that ethics and spirituality have always been together, have always been um, in a synchronic um, mutual confluence. They've never been separated. And so for Tutu's life, many people just see him as an activist. Some even see him as just a politician. And oftentimes do not see that, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a bit ironic because you know, he is an archbishop and not seeing him as a spiritual leader, but for the impact, I guess, most people just want to put him in a discourse or a category of activism, but you can't do that. His, his life, um, he was raised by monks um, out of England, the Community of Resurrection, um, a religious order. Um, he, he prays, Tutu prays about seven times a day, just like a, a monk. Um, he takes retreats, his life of prayer, his disciplines, his fasting, it's, it's very monastic. And so to say that that has nothing to do with the impact that I just tried to describe in shorthand, I think is missing a huge um, important aspect of how spirituality and activism go hand in hand. And, 
After all, Mary and Martha are sisters. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. What will ministry at your church look like as we exit the pandemic? Where do you see new opportunities and insights needed? What are the pressure points that need support? BSK, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, invites you to take a short survey where you can share your insights. You'll also be entered to win a $100 gift certificate to an online Black-owned bookstore. Help us out and take the survey today at bsk.edu backslash pathways. That's bsk.edu backslash pathways. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. As you were discussing earlier in, in your overview of, of Desmond's work, um, you, you cannot separate his work from apartheid uh, South Africa. Um, talk to us about the theological hurdles that a Black South African would have had to gone through in, in a culture of hatred and discrimination an immeasurable injustice and the way that that Desmond was able to um, over those decades that he was combating it. Sure. Um, I think um, as a U.S. Um, citizen or someone who lives in the United States, um, looking at the life of a Black American is very similar to Black South Africans navigating apartheid apartheid similar to um, Jim Crow and even slavery um, initiated from a European colonialism. Um, just like uh, both of these uh, systematic forms of racism in the United States and in South Africa. The difference was that in the United States, at least there was a constitution and in that constitution in the U.S., you had language like um, equality and how people are equal. And, you know, major leaders like uh, Martin Luther King um, could appeal to a U.S. constitution um, as evidence for the hypocrisy and the dysfunction of how Black people were being treated. Tutu did not have a constitution in South Africa to appeal to for trying to appeal to human um, a human vision of who a black person is. There was no constitution. Um, the Afrikaner Nationalist Party that was in power during the apartheid era, um, many of the leaders, interestingly enough, went to seminary Many of them were ordained, and these are like the prime ministers and presidents. 
and an apartheid as a category. Apartheid is a word similar to the word to be holy. Apartheid means to be set apart. And this political system of separation was such that as a black person, you had to fight against um, a system that had no criteria that had you as any subject or frame of reference. So Tutu's spirituality, his theological impact, his institutional impact were so important because the Afrikaner, the, the Dutch Reformed Church, um, was pretty much part of the architecture of apartheid. Apartheid had this kind of spiritual religious underpinning. And so Tutu helped to um, counter the heresy of uh, apartheid. And it was important for him as a spiritual leader, as well as a political leader, to combine those efforts into one to show how apartheid was evil and illegal. So a black person in South Africa did not have any traction or purchase in an apartheid government um, to fight politically. Um, so much of what um, was used as discourse to fight the, the politicization of apartheid was actually religious language and, and spiritual worldviews. And then lastly, Tutu appealed to an African concept called Ubuntu. And in that African concept, I think it's very much akin to how we understand the Trinity as Christians, the interdependence of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that that interdependence creates unity. And Ubuntu was a concept that Tutu also articulated to help Black people to see that white people are also um, our sisters and brothers, uh, especially the Afrikaner. Tutu knew Afrikaans as a language fluently. Um, and so he could appeal to the humanity in the Afrikaner, in those who were the architects of apartheid, to see him as a brother. So to me, that was the genius that Tutu was trying to show in his own leadership, the reciprocity, the interdependence. And I think that was one of the powerful methodologies he, he used um, to help change that apartheid society into the democratic society that South Africa now is. What was the predominant role and position of the, the Anglican Church during the heyday of apartheid? You know, Desmond being, you know, an ordained Anglican priest. You know, what what obstacles did did he have to go through in order to not only receive ordination but to rise to the place that he did uh, in the Anglican Church? Yeah, that's a good question. It's bittersweet in the sense that um, the British. Um, were also scrambling to control Africa. So in other words, there was no innocence for the British and in their initial roles in South Africa. 
also the bitter sweetness is that in the Anglican church, which was basically accompanying the British empire, uh, a British empire trying to control a continent in many ways, um, the, the, the bitterness was that the British placed the Afrikaners in concentration camps at the turn of the 20th century. So there were two white identities, two distinct white identities in South Africa, the British and the Afrikaner. And um, that, that's something that really has to be understood as students of South Africa's history are endeavor, endeavoring to learn about that context. Another really a big difference, I think, in terms of what happened in the US one coalesced white identity happened in the United States. But in South Africa, there were two distinct white identities, the British and the Africana. And so all that's to say, the Anglican church is what accompanied the, the British. And the Anglican church um, um, pulled out of political leadership um, around the 1940s in which the Afrikaners took control politically through the National Party. And in some ways, since the British were pulling back their empire, um, they felt as though um, those in power and, and those who were progressive wanted to make sure that the Afrikaners were not committing genocide as well as I'm sure there was some resentment still in the British Empire for why they didn't take um, that region of Africa, that southern tip. So through all of these variegated motivations, um, Tutu was, was chosen early on, groomed early on um, to rise up in the Anglican orders of ordination. Um, and again, Trevor Huddleston was the monk that I was referring to earlier, um, who, at a, who, was, who befriended Tutu as a child and helped him to rise up uh, in the order of being to the point of being an archbishop. In the book, you wrote about the spirituality of South African Black community through apartheid is a different experience um, and, and culture than the Black African. Uh, uh, let me start that question again. 99.9% <laughs> of the time it ends up being me goofing up, even though I give the preface, hey, if you want to restate something, <laughs> just let me know. <laughs> let me try that again. In, in the book, you wrote about the spirituality of South African Black community through apartheid, um, stating it's a different experience and culture than um, what the with Black Americans who experience Jim Crow laws and face prejudice today. You know, I wonder if you might take us a little deeper into how the cultural experience of people groups help shape their theological worldview and practice. Yeah, good question. Um, similar to what I was trying to say in terms of the complexities of South Africa, case in point, two white identities. In South Africa, there were around 12 Black identities, ethnicities. And so the cultures among so many um, 
that have been conflated in terms of the artificial categoriz categorization of race um, as an either or, black or white, um, was a major problem in South Africa. And black cultures, in many ways, um, were were put all were lumped together so that they could be uh, in a hegemonic oppressive way controlled and if you're a student of history you'll realize that um, when you try to control human beings uh, a resilience emerges um, in those who are marginalized and oppressed and that was also the case for the Black identities in South Africa. Um, the, the embrace of uh, Christianity, um, the, the enculturation of Christianity, the, um, the ways in which Black folks in South Africa coalesced, even though they had different ethnicities, different languages. Um, it just shows you the resilience that uh, these Black South Af Africans had and how their spirituality was, was not ancillary or in any way a peripheral uh, element. It was, it was essential in terms of um, mounting up resistance resilience and strategies to bring down apartheid. The churches, um, Baptist churches included um, in South Africa were important for um, black South Africans. Again, um, as the international world um, coalesced, especially around sanctions, um, the institutional church was a wonderful way to help support many of these marginalized and oppressed Black South Africans. But I think the, you know, the main key, the, the main point for Black South Africans in their spiritual life was that they could not, they, they didn't have any option of separating um, politics and spirituality. Um, their very survival was at stake. And so their ways of bringing together a spirituality that could resist the evil of apartheid um, was one of the, the main ways of seeing a vital church. And in many of our discussions today, especially around mainline churches and progressive Christianity, we have a lot to learn from those folks who when you are in a situation of oppression and pain and suffering, the church really matters. And so for us who are in these sort of progressive circles and we're wondering about our relevance anymore, I think that should give us some wisdom to be in those places where people really need the church. In the book, you, you talked about Tutu spiritual leadership um, especially uh, seeing that it, that South Africa could become this dystopian future. Um, you talked about the tension that was there with, you know, long history of whites targeting blacks and legalized criminal systems of apartheid. 
and yet his ability to uh, build relationships and create opportunities for restoration um, is quite beautiful and challenging. You know, as, as you think about Desmond's leadership, how might it influence church leaders in America today as we face the reality of racial injustice? Um, I think several things. I think one, um, I think the church and the global north uh, needs to um, resist the false dichotomy of um, the, the, the labels of unhumanity, such as liberal, conservative. Um, and we need to see how we've been infected by these dichotomies, even in the church. And I think church leaders need um, to have a, a sort of come to Jesus epiphany around, you know, what brings us together is our um, service to our risen Lord, um, our nationalities, our ethnicities, our socioeconomic status, those are things that actually divide us. What we need to do in light of what I was just trying to say earlier is we need to go into those places that are in the most need of our risen Lord. And so being conservative and liberal, being black or white, being rich or poor, as a church identity, as an institutional church identity, what really matters is serving them as if we were serving our risen Lord. So I guess underneath all that I'm saying is that um, I think our institutional churches in the global north have been drinking the Kool-Aid of um, the false dichotomies that our political conversations and our media um, have set on the table. You know, we've, we have uh, been drinking this Kool-Aid to too much and for too long. Um, nobody, if you are a student of the Bible and a student of church history, can say that the church has ever been some kind of single unitary unit. That's what Jesus prayed for and longed for, but we've never been that. And what we can do to try to move toward that is by joining together our activism and our spirituality in those places of most concern, um, those places of most suffering, and those places in which people have lost their humanity. So we, as a church, can learn a great deal from a life like Tutu's, who um, tried to embody both activism and spirituality at the same time. When you look at the longevity of his work, it spans decades. And so many, and, and rightly so, want to see change happen today, you know, now. 
And yet you see figures like Desmond who have fought the good fight for so long with persistence and fortitude. What can you tell us about his spiritual centeredness that empowered him to work and to fight for so long? Yeah, I think it's his habits, his habits, you know, praying every day, knowing that the hardest thing is to say your prayers um, and to be faithful to those prayers, not just, you know, once a week um, at a bewitching time on Sunday morning, but saying your prayers every day and saying your prayers to how you see other people uh, as being made in the image of God. Um, his, his longevity came from saying his prayers. And um, we have so many different traditions around that concept of saying, saying our prayers. But in this monastic tradition that we've, we've spoken about, um, there is a vow to say our prayers on a daily basis. Um, and in those prayers, there are different ways to pray. For example, just to be thankful is considered a prayer according to Christian tradition, just to be thankful. Because in our thankfulness, we are assuming a transcendent um, divine presence. We are assuming gift, the concept of gift automatically has the concept of the divine in it. And Tutu cultivated that kind of prayer, that kind of thankfulness. And in the Anglican tradition, there's the, the concept of the Eucharist, which in most of our Christian perspectives is the, the communion, um, the sacrament of communion of bread and wine and receiving that as a community together to, to know Christ is with us. But the way that we understand thankfulness is really how we live on a daily basis. And I think that thankfulness gave him the longevity. You know, he's 89 years old as I am talking to you now. And he, he had a deep crippling diseases uh, early on without the kind of medical and technological age of when he was growing up in the 30s. Um, and to now be almost 90 years old, that's not by accident. And, um, and those prayers that he had, the, the way he understood the world and saw the world and saw others and saw brothers and sisters instead of enemies, that all might sound idealistic, but if you think about his life and the longevity in such violent circumstances, um, his prayers and his habits were what sustained him. And we can learn in social psychology and in our social sciences, sciences that how we handle stress, how we um, in, in put together habits on a daily basis, those are the things that will bring us longevity, but will also keep um, certain diseases at bay and also will help us with productivity. So Tutu's life of prayer 
really, really, really matters. And for leadership today, um, if you don't say your prayers, you do that um, at your own peril. You've obviously written extensively uh, about him. You know, this makes several books that you've written about Desmond. You were uh, under his leadership for your ordination um, years back. What surprised you in the process of preparing for this book uh, about him? What new things did you learn? Yeah, um, his sense of humor. I knew about that. And one of the regrets um, in the book is, you know, I wish I could have done a whole lot more around his sense of humor and his way of using his sense of humor as a tactic to disarm conflict. So that was um, one of the surprises that this made me realize how powerful the sense of humor is. Um, I think I was surprised in, in writing this book in terms of how long it would take for me to do it. I, I started writing his biography when I was writing my dissertation on Tutu's theology. Um, and that was in the, it was around 1992, 1993. And it's taken me this long to actually do the to do the biography. I did more, as I said earlier, on his theology and um, his impact uh, in certain kinds of academic discourses. But it's taken me this long to do his biography. And I think a lot of it is because, you know, you need a frame of reference to see the impact that a person has on your life. So that was an epiphany for me to see why it's taken me so long to write this particular book. Last question. You've already written so much about Desmond. What do you hope your readers will gain from this specific work? Um, I hope that um, for Christians and those who are not Christians will learn that um, the church can matter, um, that the church is not only um, some kind of Monty Python sketch to make fun of, but the church can actually be a part of the solution instead of the typical way of seeing the church as the problem. Um, Tutu's life was embedded in the church. Um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which is one of the best political experiments in the world, was embedded in the church. Um, Tutu uh, uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize as an um, uh, a self-confessed Christian. Um, I guess all that I'm trying to say is that hopefully those who read this book and who become disillusioned, so much so that we've created this dichotomy, I'm spiritual but not religious, 
um, just by saying that, that's that's betraying the the sadness we have with the church. Hopefully, by reading this book, we'll see that the church matters. That the church can indeed um, show glimpses of God's reign on earth. Well, if you want to stay connected with Michael, visit michaelbattle.com. Of course, follow him on social media. Desmond Tutu, A Spiritual Biography of South Africa's Confessor, is available wherever books are sold. Michael, thank you for making the time to have this conversation, and thank you for giving us such an abundance of insight into the spiritual life of one of the church's greatest saints who beckons us to confront religious and political polarization in our own context. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. And it's very kind um, of you to, to do this story on my book and to promote it. Thank you so much. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAfee School of Theology's Doctorate and Ministry Program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.